Hello, and it's another issue of Pipettes and Politics, our special COVID-19 editions. I'm Ben Korb, the Public Affairs Director for the American Society for Biochemistry and Molecular Biology. You can find me on Twitter at BW Korb, and if you're interested, you can tweet us, hashtag Pipettes and Politics. Today, I have two guests, and they come from our ASBMB realm. I have John Arnst and Laurel Aldock. John and Laurel are science writers, John for ASBMB Today and Laurel for ASBMB. So John and Laurel, why don't you say hello? Hello, good morning. morning. Let's say it separately. Laurel, how about if you say hello first? (laughs) Okay. Hi, this is Laurel. And John? And uh, hi, this is this is this is John coming to you live from my bedroom floor, featuring one sleeping cat and a cup of coffee. That, oh, here we've got a sleeping dog and a cup of coffee. I uh, I kicked my <laughs> I kicked my dog out. He's not sleeping, so he would be uh he'd be loud. So first off, Twitter. You guys are both active in the social media. John, uh, what's your Twitter handle? Uh, my Twitter handle is at Arnst John. I would have preferred at John Arnst or at J Arnst. But uh, people beat me to those because I didn't register until 2012. So, And Laurel? You can find me at Laurel Old. And we will have those uh, on the on the little uh, blurb that we write up from here. So why I wanted to talk to you all is we are in the midst of a pandemic. We are also in the midst of really amazing science communication and really awful science communication that is happening all around us. And you all are both professional science communicators. This is the space that you live in. And so, uh, Laurel, to you first, I'm wondering, what are some of the best examples of communicating a really sort of complicated thing that you've seen um, kind of in the midst of this pandemic? John, you want to go ahead? Sure. Um so there have been a lot of really outstanding um, reporters that I'd like to just name check first before I get into one really good recent example. Um, so Helen Brandwell has been great about this at Stat News from you know the get-go. She was on top of recognizing a novel respiratory pneumonia uh, coming out of China at the very end of 2019. Um, Mary McKenna has also been killing it at Wired. Um, and now I'm blanking on everybody else who I admire. Um, but one really great example that I saw earlier this week was a visual uh, example. And I feel like that's kind of one of the best forms of communication. Um, when you're talking about something like uh, viral protein, it's easier if you give somebody something to look at, especially with a genome, or talking about how a virus infects cells. Um, at the New York Times, uh, Carl Zimmer has been working with, the, with one of their visualizers. Jonathan Corum uh, kind of gives people a really simple but effective uh, look into how the virus operates. So they recently um, did a breakdown of all 29 of the virus's genes and the activity of each of its, of each of its proteins, um, which I thought was a really good way of looking at it and really just breaking down the activities. And it's funny because you think like, oh, how, how are you going to make structural biology exciting? Um, that's Usually, it's a pretty challenging thing to do when you're looking and you're writing about that topic. Um, 
but you know they they did a really great job and kind of were able to effectively bring the tools of communication to the best medium for explaining something. Laurel, are there any examples that you've seen that you think are important to highlight? Yeah, I agree with John that the visual examples, the, just the data visualization in general has been, um, people have really innovated, I guess is the word, or, or have, have found ways to communicate um, on and off to people um, in a way that I, I just think is really impressive. So I come back again and again because it kind of lended first and has been the resource that I keep going back to, to the, um, the Hopkins um, public, School of Public Health map of yeah. confirmed cases worldwide. Um, and I think that the, the sort of data collection and visualization that they started doing because someone on their team, you know, had a personal stake, had, had family in China that he was worried about, has, has just been a terrific resource. And I think a lot of people kind of use that as their first, um, first stop. Something I, that I guess um, emerges from what John just said and from when I was kind of thinking about this question is that the people who are doing really great science communication are kind of the, the greats that are already great in sort of our professional space. So, you know, John mentioned a sort of list of writers and there are more that we could talk about, but they're people that, you know, they're doing what they do and doing it really well in response to this crisis. Yeah, this is really kind of a, in a way, a golden age of science communication. I mean, there is more out there available. And and a lot of this was out there before, um, if you knew where to look. But a lot of it, a lot of the science communication is out there more in some of the mainstream places where you know, a science curious, but not scientist type person can kind of come across it and digest it and absorb it. Um, I wonder, and I don't definitely don't want to do a name check here, but I wonder if there are some, some practices that you've seen or some ways that some things that have happened that made you as a communicator of science kind of grit your teeth at and say, Oh, that is not the right way to handle that. And so again, not trying to highlight anybody in particular, um, but are there some general, you know, if you're trying to communicate your science, you really shouldn't communicate it in this way, things that you've observed. And I'll, I'll throw that to Laurel first. Yeah. I mean, I think there's everyone in the world is paying attention to this area of science, which doesn't usually happen. Um, and I think that there's a tendency for people who, know a lot about molecular biology, but maybe little about virology, um, or, you know, a lot about virology and little about this specific virus or, or, you know, whatever, to kind of misapply expertise. And there's also, I think, a tendency to treat sort of social media discourse like a, like a department seminar, which usually it is. But at this point, people are so desperate for more information that the general public kind of might not see the difference between, um, a non-expert scientist asking questions or formulating hypotheses versus actually discussing, you know, data that they have or something that they know. So that's been a concern that I've had, um, that just sort of the risk of um, having academic conversations in a a public 
forums. Is yeah. it, in other words, um, though, social media is an absolutely incredible thing for science communication. So there, there are pluses and minuses. John, did you want to add anything? Sure. Um, yeah, in terms of non-expert um, uh, pondering and sometimes posturing about this, I would say that the worst offender, and this is a nebulous enough target that I can name it, um, the worst offenders have been um, people who are very well versed in engineering and mathematics, um, especially with a more uh, techie bro uh, mean, um, really kind of trying to wade into the, the, the discussion about modeling um, because they have some understanding of the nuts and bolts that goes into that, but not exactly the, how epidemiology works. So last week and the week before that, you had a slew of these uh, posts on Medium, which, you know, they can just write and upload. Um, some of Medium is great. It's subject to, like, elements. Um, is subject to editorial um, discretion. But some of the posts you can put up, um, they were just kind of pontificating about what the models would mean for the death toll and everything else and just offering a bunch of not only unsolicited but um, uninformed advice about it that because of Twitter and because of the confidence with which they were saying those things that, you know, maybe a scientist who knows that they're a little bit outside of their, uh, outside of their wheelhouse might not have, were really kind of uh, spreading too far and misinforming a lot of people. Um, I feel like there's been on Twitter uh, some pushback against that, but that was, I think, the worst offender, worse than any, um, you know, any somewhat good outlets maybe running something a little sensationalized. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's, um, you know, I think part of the problem is also the desire to share good news and hopeful news that maybe is not based on so much evidence, right? Or, or the difficulty in sharing positive news that has caveats because the science is hard and complex, right? Like the, maybe the consumers of news don't want to acknowledge the, how deep the shades of gray are, right? And just view it as a, are things better or are things worse? Are we going to be okay? Or are we not going to be okay? Is social distancing working right. or is it not working? Right. Absolutely. And um, I think uh, that that follows up logically with, um, you know, uh, another question um, that I think you had said earlier that you had about what a problem was that we might be coming down the road that people aren't paying attention to from a perspective as a science writer. Um, one of the problems with, you know, willingness to only share good news comes at this kind of intersection of business, uh, biz like what, what do businesses want to be able to say um, and do, what do governors and mayors want to be able to say and do, and what is the reality of when social distancing will end and what is the reality of what, you know, media and, you know, science news publications are saying about this. Obviously, science news type publications are being more realistic about the fact that, no, social distancing is going to have to continue for a long time. Um, they're the only, obviously, they're the ones best equipped to talk about it, but a vaccine is absolute best case, a little over a year. More realistic case, 18 months away. Um, so a problem with that, I think, is, and granted, I'm using the words of other people from uh, days and weeks ago, is that once 
things start to get better, which they're about to, I believe, because cases are continuing to plateau in New York, which is a strange thing to say, even as uh, so many, even with a body count like they currently have, is that once we get this idea that things are getting better, we're going to start easing up on social distancing. People are going to want to be going out and doing things, and then there's going to be a second wave rolling back. Um, I don't think I'm alone, or any of us are alone in saying that, but I feel like uh, communicators are more realistic about that happening than maybe any other parties involved in this pandemic. Laura, what about, did you have any thoughts on kind of the, you know, I, I, I feel like, and I had a conversation um, with a doctor about hydroxychloroquine and how there is this desire for it to work. And so there's this desire to speak positively about it, but we have to counter that with whether the scientific evidence shows that. And so do you, you know, do you have that struggle sometimes as you're communicating it, or do you see that struggle in kind of trying to balance the, the wish to give people hope with kind of the, the maybe not as positive actual evidence-based news that we may have around us? Yeah, I think hydroxychloroquine is an interesting one because the disconnect between um, sort of the, the science press, which is looking at these relatively small studies and, you know, the retraction of, of or notice of concern over one of them um, and kind of saying, whoa, 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 whoa. Um, you know, this is, this is, at best, a possibility um, compared to, you know, the news more generally, which is, which is responding to less informed, less evidence-based messaging. Um, it, it, it's a really interesting case. Um, but actually, the, the place for me where I've seen the most um, or felt the most sort of disconnect between conflict, I should say, between um wanting to share good news and be hopeful and, you know, kind of facing the reality of the situation is in sort of the, this tremendous outpouring of volunteerism from scientists across the country. Um, I think, especially in the early weeks, we kind of covered that at A Today as a terrific thing. And um, more recent reporting from Nature, particularly, I'm thinking of a recent investigation that they did, has kind of shown, well, even though people have made these heroic efforts to um, uh, sort of come into, into compliance with the different regulations and so on, there are still really tremendous bureaucratic difficulties in, for example, help letting scientists help contribute to COVID-19 testing efforts. And so there's sort of this, this disconnect between how hard people are working and the the outcomes that they're actually that are being achieved on a systematic level that um, that I think it's hard to you know it's, it's complex in the same way that you know our hopes for a potential therapeutic and the reality of when and to whom that therapeutic might be available if it's proven to be effective is complex right and I, I you know I think everyone kind of struggles to communicate complexity and it's harder if you have only 500 words and a tight deadline, you know? Right. Yeah. That, I mean, that's the difficulty, right? Is that it can take, you know, 300 words just to get a, just to 
lay down a primer in something that you write so that everybody understands what you're talking about. Right. I mean, it's just, it's difficult to try to communicate it. Yeah, absolutely. And things are changing so fast in this pandemic, maybe more than, I mean, more than any other field that I've written about before, but you know, I, I had a feature go up today that as early as recently as Wednesday, I was learning about updates in, you know, different, uh, molecules status of as therapeutics as they were kind of moving at an accelerated pace um, towards studies in humans. And, and it's overwhelming. It's too much information for anybody to really be on top of all of it all the time. I want to switch gears a little bit from kind of your practice as a science communicator to your just kind of human experience. I think one of the things that a lot of people want to do is um, you know, we're all faced with a really difficult situation right now. Um, and it, along with that comes stresses and anxieties. And so people will tell you, you know, to find a distraction or find, oh, you know, find a way to walk away from the news or turn off the TV or turn off the radio or just kind of focus on different things. How hard is it when your um, job is to be living in the stuff that you're, you know, your job is to have to dive into some of the stuff that is maybe the very stuff that you're wanting personally to to avoid for a period of time or to get a break from. So how do you balance that? Uh, John, I'll, I'll start with you. Um, it's hard, especially because I want to stay on top of, uh, one, from a news perspective of understanding, you know, what's going on, two, um, you know, as somebody who is, uh, writing about this, right? I want to see what angles other people are taking, what's being underexplored. Um, and it, it can be sometimes unpredictable what, at what point I'll just feel overwhelmed. Um, you know, that's a partially a product of uh, reading everything from the 13 screen of that laptop um, instead of the uh, great setup that, you know, we were able to have in our offices um, or through my phone screen um, or just the fact that it's, suffuse every single news story and it's inescapable and you know it's the only thing I talk to my mom my grandma about it's the only thing I talk to my sister about um, it's I don't I don't really have much of a good system except to when I'm feeling overwhelmed just lie down on the floor for a little while and try to think about something else um, hang with the probably cat. stand to develop better coping mechanisms but fortunately I have a very soft carpeted floor <laughs> Here, here. How about you, Laurel? Well, I think this gets back to what we were sort of saying about optimism versus realism before, cynicism before, that um, we're kind of fortunate in that our beat is research, and research is an inherently optimistic process. And so for me, um, the, the rapid accumulation of knowledge about this thing is about the, I mean, about the virus specifically and, and about kind of how we respond to it, even though some of the details of that knowledge are really troubling, it's so much better for me, I think, to be learning about entomology and, you know, molecular toxicology and, and kind of the, the realm where I feel most comfortable, the, the biochemical realm and the, the sort of drug development and discovery realm um 
And so for me, I've kind of tried to avoid the news from hospitals and emergency rooms and really just focus on that more hopeful space of, of the sort of scientific discoveries. Um, but again, that, you know, that, that potentially sacrifices some um, cynical or queer-eyed looking at what's really going on out there. I'll also just share my experience as, as the guy who's living in the policy space. Um, it is at times infuriating to watch policymakers and to listen to policymakers talking um, or to know, you know, I am one of the hats that I wear is I'm currently the acting president of the coalition for health funding. And so I'm, you know, talking to people who live in the public health funding space all of the time. Uh Um, And it's Uh to to be talking to, to, you know, people on the policy side that we, you know, you just bang your head against the wall and ask like, why are we doing it in this way when it seems so clear to be doing it another way. And um, sometimes I will lace up my shoes and go for a run. And I have found that in the past month I have, beat my 5k personal record about four different times. Um, and I think you could probably look at the day of the run and kind of what my email box looked wow. like that day. And there's probably an indication there in between those two things. Um, I think the last question that I want to, that I want to throw out there, um, trying to find a positive from this. And this is a question I've asked pretty much everybody that I've interviewed. We're in strange times and, um, you know, necessity is the mother of innovation and invention and so I wonder if, you know, in doing, in living in a fast-paced environment, in going, you know, as remote as we've all had to, have there been innovations in science communication that you have seen that you think are really clever ways to get through this current time that may be kind of more like the norm when we get on the other side of this, whenever the other side of this comes? Uh, Laurel, I'll start on your side. Yeah, um, so this is less about, science communication per se than communication between scientists. But I think that virtual meetings and seminar series and some of the sort of online grassroots webinars that I've seen have a ton of potential to kind of unite fields, not just across the sort of physical distance between members of the same institution, but also across distance between institutions. And I really love the sort of spirit of global research discussions that I've seen in my corner of the science world. Um, And I'm also kind of optimistic about that as we imagine a lower emissions future moving forward. Maybe everyone is more moderate about their travel and maybe global virtual meetings will become more of a thing. John? Um, Yeah, one, so one, it's not, you know, by any means a recent innovation, um, but one thing that I think will at least affect um, science communication going forward has been, and also science publishing going forward, um, is how much focus there has been on not just preprints coming up quickly, not just the preprints being uploaded quickly and evaluated quickly within the um, bioarchive site, but really watching the organic discussion of those on Twitter by scientists who are both, you know, potentially would have been reviewers for that, have that kind of uh, insight, and people who are maybe half a, half a field removed or maybe, um, you know, 
have still have some expertise to put into it, uh, being able to watch that happen at a scale that maybe wasn't happening before, um, I think really um, has a lot of insight um, to uh, in, in a lot of ways, a lot of the research yeah. has been democratized, right? In in a in a really unique way yeah. because it's happening. It's like if you know where to look, um, it's like you're all part of the same lab discussing the experiments and the results that you're coming across. Also, exactly. shout out here to the scientists who are working on curating the enormous volume of um, of preprints that are coming out, both the folks at BioArchive, who I understand have been working really, really hard to get things up as soon as they can, and also the folks who are, you know, kind of identifying interesting and important prints that are methodologically sound and then putting those someplace that others can find them. Great. Well, yeah, do you know, do we, do we know what the current tally of preprints is right now on that? I do list? not. I don't either, but I normally wouldn't. So I'm not the right person to ask for that question anyway. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a lot for sure. Yeah. All right. Well, I, um, I want to thank you guys for your time today. Um, it is uh, it is yeah, a unique time. For the invitation, yeah, not a problem. And, go ahead. That's for sure. John, did you have any parting words? Uh, just uh, you know, um, I'm glad that uh, you know we were able to provide some input for you, and uh, also flattered that you reached out to both of us. Yeah, no, absolutely. This is you look. It's. It's unique times. And so I think it's really interesting to hear the perspective of how everybody is dealing with kind of their slice of what they do. So um, John Arnst and Laurel Aldock, I want to thank you guys very much. Um, to our listeners, I want to thank you for continuing to listen to our series, our COVID-19 special editions of Pipettes and Politics. This has been Ben Korb, and I'll, uh, I guess we'll listen on the next episode. Thanks for joining. 